Ephesians chapter 5 this evening. Excited to preach to you on this uh, topic. I believe that if you'll pay attention, there will be something for just about everybody in the room. No matter how long you've been in church, you'll probably learn something tonight. I certainly learned something in my study that I'm excited to share with you. So Ephesians chapter number 5, we'll begin reading in verse 24. The Bible says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh." This is a great mystery. And I can tell you that is certainly a great mystery. Uh, in all my study, I can honestly say I do not fully understand how a man and a woman can become one flesh. I don't understand it in terms of how the church could be completely one with Christ. But the Bible says it is a great mystery, but it is quite possible. Amen. The Bible says in verse number 33, Nevertheless... Or I will read verse 32 in case I didn't read it all. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, there's the context of the passage. We're not, we're not doing this passage a disservice by speaking primarily about Christ and His relationship with His church. Amen. Now, this passage certainly teaches much about the relationship between a loving husband and his loving wife. Certainly, there's many applications that can be made throughout this passage. But the context is kind of spelled out for us, is it not? I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse number 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I love our church. I love it. I love everything about it, except some of the people in it. But primarily, I love most things about our church. Um, I actually enjoy going to other churches only to visit for a brief time because I, I always feel like I want to come home. I had the privilege of going to what I consider to be one of the finest Baptist churches in the nation when I was in college. And I tell you, my heart longed to come back home to this church. And there's people that look forward to going out there. And there's people that look forward to uh, uh, conferences and, and maybe going out there to see the ministry. I'll tell you what, when I was out there, the only thing I wanted to do was pull a Dorothy and say, there's no place like home. Amen. Click my red heels and come home. But I do enjoy going to other churches to visit sometimes. And, and if you ever see me going to a church, for instance, yesterday I attended a funeral and I went into another uh, local church and... And if you see me go in, I'm looking at everything. I'm looking at the projector positions. I'm looking to the style of projector they use. I'm looking at how they decorate their bathrooms, the soaps that they use. I'm looking at their carpet, their, uh, uh, their pews or chairs in this case. I'm looking at their offering envelopes, their connection cards. I'm looking at their advertisements, their banners. You say, why are you looking at all that? Well, I'm trying to steal good ideas. <laughs> That's why I'm doing it. <laughs> But I do, I love going into churches, but I can honestly say of all the churches I've been to, I, I'm, I'm thankful to say, and I give all the glory to God in this, I believe we have the most beautiful church I've ever been to. It's beautiful. People see it from the highway and it is striking to them. And certainly much thought went into the design and the architecture of our building, but it is beautiful. But this passage is not saying that the Lord purchased and redeemed His church to present unto it, unto Him, a beautiful church. 
The ultimate goal of Christ is not to have fine architecture and buildings. For I've been to some very small churches and to churches that look like uh, shacks compared to this one. And yet they are very fine people. And there's a great man of God leading them. And, and honestly, many of those men lead lives of obscurity. Never asked to pre- preach at the big preacher's meeting. But those men are faithful. And God's doing more with them than some other men that I know. You see, God doesn't, isn't all that concerned with architecture or the pew color or the carpet color or the advertisements or what theme you choose for vacation Bible school. God's concern is, is Joshua Baptist Church a glorious church? Well, that sounds nice. And I hope Joshua Baptist Church is a glorious church. But I think if we are going to arrive to that destination, we might study as to what the passage says about being a glorious church. And that's what we're going to take a look at this evening, a glorious church and how we can ensure that Joshua Baptist Church is a glorious church. Number one, I want you to notice whether or not we're a glorious church will depend on the state of our respect. Verse number 22 of Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Wives, now every lady in the room, say the next word for me. Submit. Now, that, let's try that again. Every lady in the room, say that next word there. Wives, now that's not a good word to some. And, and, and in Western culture, in modern 21st century America, we have a, a uh, society that is claiming equal rights for anybody and everybody, no matter how much you contribute or how little you contribute, everybody has a fair share at the table. Everybody has a right to say. And so, uh, and this started many, many years ago, but, but we've come to a place now where no one person is forced to submit to anybody, including politicians that are wanting employees to run the businesses that employers have purchased and invested in themselves. Our society is eroding the very foundation of some people are in positions of authority. And the Bible kind of says to this, deal with it. The powers that be are ordained of God. You see, God has put certain people in authority. In our country, uh, God has placed men in our government in authority. And in our church, God has placed men in authority in our church. And, and so you should not look as though, at those people, if they're qualified leaders, as authoritarians or people that aren't worthy of it. You should look at them and say, okay, if you have authority, I ought to respect it. And the Bible here uses a word. It's somewhat become a Christian cuss word, if you will. But it is this. Submit. Submit. And the Bible goes on to say this in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The word submit, the word subject there are both the same Greek word. And they mean to this. To put in subjection, to relinquish one's own power. Now I want you to look at verse number 1 of chapter 6. Children, what's that next word there? Obey. Verse number 5. Servants, be, what's that next word there? Obedient. See, we have not done a very good job as to discerning the difference between obedience... And submission. If, if there was not a difference, why would the wives not just say, wives, obey your husbands? See, because the marital relationship was not one of subordination. It was not one where the husband is to rule over his wife as a, a master or a servant type relationship. That's not at all the case. The idea is this. Both have equal shares, but the wife relinquishes her power to the husband. That's what the word means. Submit. Relinquish one's own power. You say, Brother Andrew, I don't really like the sound of that. Well, I tell you, uh, what we've done is we've bought into American culture marriage. And if you want to just, I don't know, check up on how American marriages are doing right now, what do you think the status of those are? We go through marriages like we do uh, soda, favorite soda pops. 
I mean, people are, uh, I saw it today, it said serial, uh, serial bachelors. They, they get married and immediately divorce, get married and immediately divorce, get married and immediately divorce. I mean, it is unreal, the state of marriage in our country. Nobody takes their commitment or their oath or their vow serious. And frankly, I'm tired of going to ceremonies where we all suspect that's going to be the case three weeks from now. Marriage and the importance of it has completely become a joke in America. But that was never the case in the Bible. And we act as if we are some authority and we should tell God how marriage should work. You know, everybody should have a vote. It should run like a democracy. And God says, look, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And if you'll submit to my plan for you, ultimate peace and happiness can be found in the plan that I have made. And listen to me, if Brother Andrew had written this book, you would have every reason in the world to get mad at me. But I did not. The Apostle Paul wrote this book to the church of Ephesus under the influence and the direction and the divine revelation of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit told Paul to write these words, wives, submit. Submit. Relinquish your power to your husband. Take your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse number 16. I mentioned to you that I learned something in my study, and it was this. I'm very excited to share this with you, because I've never known this. You may already know this. There's men in this room, um, my father, Dr. House, that are much wiser and more experienced in study of the Bible. But I learned this in my study for this sermon. Genesis chapter number 3, verse 16 The Lord is kind of delving out the punishments as a result to Eve and Adam taking the fruit in the Garden of Eden. He's already told the serpent that he would be cursed above all the cattle, above every beast. He would put enmity between the, uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But in verse number 16, now he gets on the, the punishment for the wife, for Eve. The Bible says in verse number 16... And unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. I think any lady that's ever had a child can say, Yeah, thanks, Eve, we heard that. We we know full well what that means. But this is what I learned. The Bible says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. But thy desire shall be to thy husband. Traditionally, I understood that to mean that you would desire a relationship with your husband. As I studied the passage, that's not at all what it means. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Look in verse number 7 of chapter 4. This is in uh, reference to Cain and Abel. Abel brings an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Cain does not. And the Lord corrects Cain and says, Cain, that's not what I asked you to do. And, uh, and, and he, the Lord tells Cain this. The Lord knows what's going on in Cain's heart. The Lord knows what's going on in Cain's mind. He's jealous and he's angry and he's disappointed that he would be rejected. And the Lord, in verse number 6, said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth and thy, why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? In other words, if you just remedy the problem... If you just go and fix it, Cain, won't all this be taken care of? There's no problem here, Cain. And if thou doest not well, notice this, sin lieth at your door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, does that not sound almost identical to what we just read? We'll read it uh, together. Notice in Genesis 3.16, the Bible says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 7 in chapter 4. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now that's very similar language, is it not? That word desire literally means to conquer or to rule over. In other words... The Bible in chapter number 3 and verse 16 is saying, Eve, every day of your life, you will desire to rule over your husband. But he's going to rule over you. 
Is that not so unique? And then in Cain's case, the Bible is saying, sin lieth at your door. And then it says, and unto thee shall be his desire. In other words, you're going to want to win over him. But listen, Cain, uh, thou shalt rule over him. Sin's going to want to control you. But if you do well, you won't have to deal with it. You, You understand what I'm saying? The verse is not saying, hey, Eve, you're going to want to spend time with your husband. Uh, In fact, when you think about it in context, it makes no sense. Hey, Eve, childbirth is going to be miserable, but at least you'll have Adam to lie on, you know, to rest your head on his shoulder. That's the way I always read it. But actually what it's saying, the Lord is delivering punishments to Eve and to Adam. And he says to her, hey, Eve, you're going to struggle in childbirth. And you are always going to want to desire to usurp the authority of Adam. And listen to me, he will rule over you. That like, was like scales falling off of my eyes. Because guess what? This was the, the birth of the women's liberation movement. This is where male chauvinism d- uh, sprung from. This was the introduction of the, the, the distance between man and woman, between husband and wife. This was the first time in human history that the wife ever rolled her eyes at Adam. <laughs> and you say, you're kidding. You're, you're out of your mind, Brother Andrew. No, I'm saying that the Lord is delivering punishments. And He's saying, I am going to put in Eve an innate desire to want to usurp the authority of Adam, but I'm not going to let you. Adam will rule over you. He will be the head. That's pretty remarkable stuff. And now in context of the passage back in Ephesians chapter 5, what we see is, we see that this is the case. Throughout human history, Women have wanted to rule over men and men have wanted to trample over women. That's, that's the way it's been. But God introduced a new way. And in marriage, the, the idea and the plan was that the husband would so love his wife as his own body that he would lead her and care for her and protect her and do for her what nobody else would be willing to do because he loved her that much. And in that relationship, in that loving and leading relationship, the wife would be willing to relinquish her own power, her own desires, her own thoughts, because he loves her so much and she loves him so much that she will relinquish the right to her own agendas, her own opinions, her own viewpoints. That would be literal submission in marriage. Now, the children were not commanded to submit. What were the children commanded to do? Obey. Now, that's a whole different thing. They don't have opinions. They don't have rights. They don't have viewpoints. If mom and dad say it, they better do it. And you say, what a curse. I'm telling you, I told the teenagers all the time, you are the luckiest people in all the world. Us as adults, we got to get up in the morning, we got to pray and we got to say, God, I want you to direct my steps today. Lord, if you want us to move, if you want me to take that new job, Lord, if you want me to do this or do that, I pray that you would reveal your will to me. You know what teenagers got to go do? Ask mom and dad. That's it. For if mom and dad tell them to do it, guess what? God's will now immediately becomes that they would obey mom and dad. Mom and dad, children are to obey mom and dad. Wives were to submit to husbands and husbands were to love and lead his family. And this was all to be done in biblical charity. See, that's one ingredient missing from homes these days. Biblical love. Love puffeth not itself up. Love behaveth itself not unseemly. Love does not think any evil. Love does not think selfishly. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's a whole lot of things that love does and does not do. And a lot of those things are missing from homes today. And this was God's plan for the home. That husbands would love and lead their families and wives would relinquish their authority in support of God's ordained leader in their life. Is everybody with me? I hope I haven't offended anybody too badly tonight. But this is very important. That we would understand what the, 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 the writer of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, is trying to teach us. 
For he uses the relationship between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, to be an example, a launch pad, if you will, to explain the relationship between Christ and his church. God's church is not made up of buildings, it's made up of people. You know what people come with? They come with problems. People come with opinions. People come with issues. And God's church is made up of a bunch of imperfect people. And if those imperfect people got their way, they would lead the church straight to the gates of hell. When Jesus says the gates of hell would not, re, uh, would not prevail against it. If we led the church the way we wanted to lead the church, we would definitely lead it into destruction. But that's why we've got to submit to the Lord. You see, the relationship between uh, God's, or the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, is this. One of total subjection, one of total, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, forgive me. One of total submission. You see, there's a difference between subjection and submission. Submission means to relinquish your power voluntarily. So as we said earlier, the husband was to lead his family in love, right? Can we all say that Christ did a pretty good job of that? Christ uh, originated his church. Christ died for his church. Christ loves his church. He did all of this for the church right now. He's in heaven making intercession for his church. You see, the Lord's kept up his end of the bargain. Now, what was the wife's role? To submit to God's ordained authority in her life because she loves him. And that is the role of the church. A lot of people in churches today want their own way, but it's never been about our way. Jesus said, hey, I will build my church. This isn't about Gene Wolfenbarger. This isn't about Andrew Wolfenbarger. This isn't about anybody or how long you've been in this church. From the beginning, Jesus was in it. He, he was in it before any of us, even before Miss Nancy and Miss Ginger. Christ was in this church. It is His church. And we must respect His authority in it. See, some things that the Lord commands His church to do, uh, at least two very important things He commands us to do. Number one, He commands that we love one another. Right? Can we all agree on that? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples indeed, that ye have love one for another. He's commanded us to love one another, and I believe that encompasses bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, caring for one another, restoring those that have fallen because we're spiritual and we fear that if we don't restore them, we might too fall because we'd be puffed up with pride. Restoring those that have fallen, caring for those that are uh, maybe in in the far country as the prodigal son was. I think that all encompasses loving one another, okay? Can we all agree the church should love one another? Say amen. 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 Secondly, can you all agree that the church is commissioned by Christ to carry the gospel to the lost? It was the last thing he said. <laughs> Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. We can all agree that we are to take the gospel to the lost, wherever they may be. Can we all say amen there? Amen. amen. So two responsibilities the church has. Love one another and carry the gospel to the lost. Okay. Then why is it that primarily... The church has, at least from an outside, outsider's paradigm, we are labeled as being full of hypocrites. People that, you know, look down upon others for coming in the church. And, I mean, you've all ever heard that before? You invite somebody to church and that's kind of their response. So it's just full of hypocrites. Can we, can we all say that while many do love each other in the church, we have not followed that command as thoroughly as we should have, that we would have love one for another, that it would supersede being selfish and petty, that that love would just be all-encompassing, and that would be the earmark that indicates we truly are in love with Christ because we're in love with those that He loves. Can, can we all agree we may be falling short of that bar a little bit? Can we all agree that, and I'm not talking about a universal church here, I'm not talking about the church on the boulevard or the church on the the highway. I'm talking about Joshua Baptist Church. Can we all agree that we are not and do not 
as effectively as the Lord would have us to take the gospel to the lost. Can we all agree on that? The church is not as glorious as it should be because we are not submitting as we should. We're not relinquishing our own rights, our own authority, because these are two very simple and very repetitive commands in Scripture that we would love one another and carry the gospel to the lost. Now look, I'm not blaming you. I'm not saying that you're the only party that's guilty. I'm saying we're all in this together, for we are the bride of Christ. We are the church of God. But I'm saying that the reason... The very reason our church may be beautiful outside, but not as glorious as it should be, is because we are not relinquishing our authority to the one who truly has authority in our church. Next week, if you were to come into church, and I was to maybe remove these chairs here and put a drum set in, not an electric one. I mean, I'm talking about like a Ricky-free drum set. We'll just take the plexiglass away. It'll just be a real drum set right here on the stage. And behind the choir loft, we decide to put a smoke machine and some lasers and some light shows and, and really get jiggy with this thing, okay? And maybe next week we go out and we, we, we have open auditions for a praise team because we're going to have a new praise team and we bring in some really talented singers and, and they come in and they're going to help us worship together. I wonder if you came in on Sunday morning and saw that picture, if you might not be a hair disappointed in what's happened. I would even suggest that some of you might leave the church. I would suggest that maybe some of you would go to preacher and say, what are you letting that hair-braiding idiot do? I mean, I'm all for renewing, but that doesn't mean we have to make everything new -y. Let me ask you, if next Saturday I canceled our soul winning program, would it affect you as badly as drums and a light show and a praise team? You with me? There's nothing in the Bible about drums or lights. In fact, hey, if you look, there's lights in the Shekinah glory. The Lord. Nothing about smoke. In fact, there's incense in the tabernacle if you wanted to go that far. Nothing about that. But we have revised what our definition of what church is. We pick our churches based upon our own personal preferences. And we're not at all concerned about what the Lord Jesus is concerned about. Our job is not to dictate to the church what it should look like. But rather submit to the Lord and let Him make us glorious. Because of His working in us. Are you with me? It, 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 we will never be the glorious church that we need to be until we totally respect the Lord's authority in our congregation. Secondly, I want you to notice this evening that not only will the state of our respect have bear indication on whether or not our church is glorious or not, but secondly, the state of our reveal. Verse number 20 says this, chapter number 5, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the... Oh, I'm sorry, verse number uh, 26. It's hard to see through tears. That's weird. Verse 26, that He might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In modern day Christianity, there has been a de-emphasis on outward look. I'm not trying to throw any church under the bus, but I am saying modern Christianity has began to focus completely internal as if that is the only thing that matters and external issues are not really an issue at all. The Bible actually teaches something different. Man seeth on the outside, right? Man looketh on the outward appearance. Isn't that what the Lord tells Samuel? The, the Lord seeth the outward appearance. But God looketh on the inward. So with every lie of Satan, there is enough truth to almost make you bite that hook. Yeah. 
You see, the Lord does focus on the inward parts of man. The Lord is concerned and desires sincerity in the inward parts. But the Bible always says, for out of the heart flow the issues of life. In other words, what is on the inside will always manifest on the outside. You cannot say to me, well, I'm a good person on the inside. I may not look like it, but I am a good person. For That is totally ignorant to what the Bible says. It's totally in disagreement with what the Bible says. The Bible makes the case that God is concerned with appearance. You know how I know this? Because the reason He died for the church was that He might present it to Himself a church that was glorious in appearance. Now this gloriousness is not, as I mentioned earlier, an external beauty, but it is rather an holiness that is, that is produced from the heart. That He works in our lives that we would desire holiness. And what has occurred in modern Christianity is a total de-emphasis on holiness. On personal sanctification. We've just disregarded it as it does not matter at all. But the Lord says here that the whole reason I'm working in the church, that I died for the church, is so that I might present it unto myself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any sort of blemish at all. The Lord is very concerned with the holiness of His church. Holiness, we need holiness in the church. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. This is all in anticipation of that great day where we'll one day look to see our Savior's face. As the hymn writer put it, when my faith becomes sight, when everything that the Bible told me becomes the actual manifestation of reality in front of me, This is speaking of that day. And the Bible says in verse number 3, And every man that hath this hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. You see, this passage speaks to the fact that we are the bride of Christ. The passage speaks to the fact that one day there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb where we will be presented to our bride, or to our groom, the one that died for us and redeemed us from all of our sins. You see, that is what this is in reference to. And as I think about this passage, I, 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 I think of that. I think of every man that hath this hope, the the hope of one day being presented to the, the groom, one day being presented to Jesus. I think of this verse and it says, And every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself even as he is pure. I remember when my wife and I got married You see, for men, the the wedding ceremony starts about three or four days beforehand. But for ladies, the wedding ceremony starts three to four months beforehand. They're picking out flowers and colors and cakes and all sorts of things. I didn't help much with that. I just made sure I was there on time. But I remember in the months leading up to our wedding ceremony my wife became very concerned, or my fiancé at the time, but my wife now, she became very concerned with her appearance. She started eating a little healthier. She wanted to fit into the dress. I remember she even got a membership at a a, a sun tanning place because she didn't want to be all pale and Casperish in that church, you know. She wanted to have a little color about her. And so she went in there and she was getting tans and Man, it was unreal. They actually came in and they did her makeup. And she had these friends from high school that had a business called Updo's. And man, they came in and they did her hair like it ain't never done, been done since. I don't know why. But, you know, they did more on that day. Why? For the presentation. You see, the, the highest point of every marriage, other than the kiss, of course, that was the best part of mine, but the, 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 the highest point in every marriage ceremony is the presentation of the bride. You see, everybody's chatting, everybody's talking, you know, this is a beautiful ceremony, I love the colors, I love, love what they've done in the background, or maybe ex-boyfriends that are jealous aren't saying those types of things, I'm not entirely sure. But as this is all going on, there comes a moment where the music changes, Right? 
And I don't know, Miss Chris, I wish I could play that piano. But it goes, dum, 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 dum. Dum, 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 dum. You got to be careful because you'll confuse it with the funeral song real easily. Dum, 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 dum. But isn't that what it is, everybody? When they hear those first few notes, dum, 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 dum. What does everybody do? Nobody's talking at that point. Ants that they ain't they ain't been affected at all emotionally. Now they start sobbing. They're reaching for hankies. Everybody stands up. And the, the object of focus is, is the background, the, where the preacher's standing. But not when the presentation of the bride occurs. Why? Because everybody wants to see how pretty the bride looks on that day. Amen. And guess what? Amy took a bath that day. <laughs> Believe it or not. They, they have very limited water supply in North Carolina. That's why they all bathe together. Um, but you know what? She did take a bath. She got in her beautiful dress. She had gone and done her hair and had beautiful highlights in it beforehand. She gets her updo done and she's got makeup plastered on every single piece of epidermal layer she has. Why? Because she wanted to look beautiful for the presentation. This modern philosophy of not at all being concerned with our holiness or our moral standards, is of the devil. The Lord says that He wants His bride to be beautiful that day. He wants His bride to be radiant and glorious. But it is not speaking of an external or an outward fakeness. It is speaking of, and maybe that which the Pharisees had, it is speaking of an internal purity as a chaste virgin, uh, wholly presented to Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, friend, how concerned are you with your personal holiness? When's the last time it crossed your mind? Do we look at the temptations that we struggle with and the sins that we fall to as mere inconveniences in the daily walk? Or do we actually look at it as what it is, a trespass against the grace of God? See, God is very concerned with how we are presented to our Savior. And I want you to take a look in verse number 27. The Bible says that the way that Christ would purify us, that He would cleanse us, that we would go through this process. In verse 26, the Bible says that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The washing of water by the word. That last word of that verse, the the word, word, (laughs) actually is used oftentimes in the New Testament. In fact, as I studied it, I found that that word Uh, when interpreted logos, as in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as, uh, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Word in John chapter 1 is the word, the Greek word logos. It's interpreted that way or translated that way uh, 330 times in the New Testament. It's the same word that is used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 that says, Study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It speaks of the written word in most cases as the only exception being the living word in Jesus in John chapter 1. However, this word in verse number 26 is not the same. It is a word that is rema in Greek. It is only uh, used 70 times in the New Testament. If you'll stick with me, we'll get through the Greek lesson, but there's a tremendous lesson that is to be learned here. The word not only means the written word of God, but this dictates and delineates when a word is more than written, it is a word that is spoken. Are you with me? That's the primary difference. You see, logos is a word that is uh, on a page to some degree. uh, But this word is a word that requires pronouncement. You know what this verse is actually saying? It is not simply saying that we will be cleansed by the washing 
of the written word of God, which I believe it is in context, you can understand it to be that. But it actually is saying, by the preaching of the word of God. See, the word requires pronouncement. This word literally means that it would be spoken. It behooves, the, the literal word in Greek behooves that it would be spoken. You see, you can do all the Bible study you want. And I have done a lot of Bible study in my life. And there are times when I learn a tremendous amount about the Bible. And there have been times when I have been very convicted when studying my Bible. But there is nothing that can take the place of the preaching of God's word. Paul told Timothy this, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. You see, there's this trend nowadays to just make everything a Bible study. If you look at the way modern uh, services are broken down, you have about 40 minutes for singing and about 15 minutes of preaching. And that, to call what they do preaching in most cases, is very generous because it's really just teaching in a sense. It's uh, never rebuking. It's never exhorting. It's just simply, let's, what does this look at? Let's look at this logically and explain it. But this verse is not speaking of that. If you go and knock doors with me, you'll find that most people that have a church generally do church in their own home or that of a friend. They go to other people's homes and do Bible studies, maybe at work, and they call that their church. But that is not church. This church, as long as I am concerned and as long as I am a part of it, will be a preaching church. Because there are things that occur in preaching that only the Holy Spirit can do as God's man preaches God's book to God's child. And it begins to convict and begins to tell them, hey, you're not right here and you know it. And there's times when studying your Bible is helpful and it's good, but it will never take the place of preaching. Never. And the Lord says that if we're going to be revealed as a glorious church, the preaching of God's word will cleanse us and purify us. You say, Brother Andrew, I don't think preaching is all that important. Well, I'm glad you're here tonight because there's a lot of people in our church that aren't. And they have made a conscious decision. You see, this is an epidemic in American Christianity. As churches cancel services, they only put off red blinking lights to the community that what we were doing on Sunday night was not important enough to continue doing it. That nothing on Sunday night ever actually happened. So we're just going to stop and we're going to go look at all the other stuff. By the way, with the invention of DVR, are you kidding me? Staying home and watching TV is the whole reason you miss church? Are you kidding? And we only preach three times a week. We try to be very thoughtful and considerate of your time. But there are things that occur in preaching that just don't occur any other time of the week. God promises to meet with his children where two, two or three are gathered. God promises to be his word will never return void. And I just believe in the power and the primacy of preaching. You see this... Uh, If we're going to be a glorious church, it will have to do with the state of our respect, whether or not Christ is in his appropriate and proper position. The state of our reveal, whether we're concerned about our holiness and we're trying to live a life that is pleasing to God. And then thirdly, the state of our relationship. Verse number 29, the Bible says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. You see, that's a a reference to a verse in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The Bible says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What this passage is teaching is the oneness of, with which husbands and wives would be joined and with Christ and the church would be joined. They would be one in everything. As I looked at this, I couldn't help but notice that there are two very needful things that must occur in marriage as well as Christ and His church. In order for there to be a marriage according to this verse, and according to verse 31, there must be a leaving. Notice this. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother. Now, I don't believe that the man ever disregards his father and mother. 
I believe even to, to, in, in, in biblical, uh, or to obey the Bible, honors his father and mother. But there is a principle that the man can no longer be continually burdened with a relationship with his father and mother. And he must move on to the relationship that he now has with he and his wife. Do you all agree with that? And there must be a departure, a separation, a, a, a leaving, if you will. Now let's draw the parallel to the church. What might the church be leaving in order to have a relationship with Christ? Are you leaving the world? As we've evolved as a church, what we've done is we've tried to make our churches as worldly as we can so that we might bring people from the world into our churches. Our churches are becoming more worldly. Our world ain't becoming more churchy. It's not working. And the Bible is telling us here that if we are to be a glorious church for Christ, we must depart from the world. We must be separate from the world and distinct from the world. You know, every once in a while, police officers will call a a person in and uh, they'll have to choose between a lineup of people. And and they'll have to look at, you know, uh, suspect number one, two, three, and they'll have to call them forward. And maybe they'll have them say some words and, and maybe they'll speak differently and they'll recall something that they heard during the act that was committed or or maybe they'll recognize their face and oftentimes they'll bring in men that look kind of similar and 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 all this i wonder if you were put in a lineup with the worst person at your job would you stand out because we are to be separate distinct and separate hey look i i like it when my wife dresses modestly you say brother andrew you go out and crocs yeah but nobody thinks my toes are attractive believe it or not. You know, there's just something to be said. It's not old fashioned necessarily. It's just honoring the Lord with what he's given us. It's just being submitted to him and it's being separate from the world. There is nothing that this world has to offer us that Christ does not give us more and then some. If we're going to be a glorious church, we must number one, leave the world and secondly, cleave to Christ. Notice verse 31. Leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. There's a joining, a cleaving. When dad does wedding ceremonies, he often mentions that this, this is a process by which like, they're super glued together. They're, they're, they become one in everything. And their pursuits and their goals and their ambitions and their hopes and their desires, they become one. And as we mentioned earlier, the church, if taking its rightful place, should put Christ in a prominent position. And we begin to pursue what he wants us to pursue. And we begin to do what he wants us to do. For that is our position as the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, But God who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. My friend, Christ and his goals ought to be the heartbeat of our church. We ought not be concerned if we offend anybody. We ought not be concerned whether or not our community thinks it's attractive. We ought not really be too concerned whether it's going to inconvenience us or cost us something. We ought not be concerned with any of these very selfish things. Christ should be the one leading our church. And if we're not willing to hand Him the reins and say, Lord, this is your church and I am just part of the bride. I'm going to do what you want to do. If we're not willing to do that, we'll never be a glorious church. The other day I was talking on the phone. I can't remember. It might have been to Cody Sears or JT. I can't remember. It might have been to Sean. I'm not sure. Or Charlie. I can't remember. But I remember I was talking to them on my truck phone. And man, I was just going to town. I was telling them the plans. Maybe we were talking about church stuff or something way less spiritual. Hunting stuff. I can't remember. But we were talking and I was going on. Man, I was 90 miles a minute going on. And, and then eventually I got a call back from the guy that I was talking to. And I thought to myself, you mean to tell me I've been talking for a minute and a half and this guy ain't even been on the phone? <laughs> Apparently, we had been dri- or I had been driving and my phone had disconnected the person. I didn't know it. It made no sound, didn't let me know. And I was just 
I was just hammering out. I mean, my best ideas came in that minute and a half. I ain't had a good one since. And man, they called back. I was embarrassed. I was like, well, what part did you leave off at? I don't even remember what I was trying to say. You know, the sad thing is in most churches, Christ could completely leave its activity. Completely leave it. And no one would even notice. Services would progress as normal. Songs would be sung in the same manner. Sermons would be preached with the same dry eye. Altars would be empty as they have been before. Very little would be accomplished for the kingdom because Christ wasn't at all involved. And I'm sad to say, I'd actually say that's probably the state in most churches. Christ hadn't been there in years. Selfish preachers preaching what they want. Not preaching a full gospel. Not preaching true doctrine. Selfish church members don't want to hear what the preacher has to say. Let's just get on. Let's get to lunch, preacher. Don't you dare preach over an hour to me. It's selfishness. What we've done is we have wrestled away all the rightful authority that Christ should have in His own church. Hey, without Him, there would be no church. Without Him, there would be no bride. I was reading today, as Adam created, or as God created Eve from the rib of Adam... So too, he put Adam under, you remember, he fell, made a deep sleep fall on Adam. Fell asleep, removed the rib, created Eve from the rib. Hey, by the way, a deep sleep had to fall upon Jesus for the church to be born. Deep sleep of Calvary for three days, he had to die. And it was out of the flowing wound that was on his side that the church was born because we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for that, that sleep, if it wasn't for that surgery, if it wasn't for that procedure, we would not be here at all. and We'd be lost in our sins on our way to hell. Friend, I want to be a part of a glorious church. I've traveled this country from west coast to east coast. I've been in churches of all size, from the biggest to the smallest. I've been in the most conservative, some of the most liberal. I've been in them all. I'm searching to find the answers as to how Joshua Baptist Church can grow. I'm searching to find the answers as to what sermons Joshua Baptist needs to hear. I'm searching to find the answers as to how God can really begin to move in our hearts. That we would be a congregation that loves one another. And a congregation that really genuinely wants to see sinners saved. I'm searching. I'm praying. I'm doing everything I can. But at the end of the day, I want nothing more for Joshua Baptist Church than that we would be a glorious church. And if our church numbers never grow, and if no one ever gets saved, and if no... no tears are ever cried. If we are a glorious church, my friend, we'll have met the goal. I don't know what I can do more. I really don't. I'm trying. I don't know what you can do more. I really don't. I'm praying about it. But I know one thing. We are not where we need to be as a church for the glory of God. We're a pretty church. We're a beautiful church. I don't think we're a glorious church. And I want to be that for Jesus.